Hello there. Welcome back to the This Human Life podcast. I'm Melissa Nova. This is the companion podcast to the book This Human, um, where I read through the book. As I read, I kind of give you a bit of a behind the scenes um, uh, perspective of the content that um, is in the book itself. It's kind of like a the author's notes version of it, the director's cut. We are starting on page 36 today. Uh, I reckon by the end of this episode, we would have finished chapter one, which feels like quite an achievement. Um, okay, page 36, exercise 1.10. Difference between findings and insights. Findings describe what people do. Insights describe why they do it. Always seek to understand the belief and motivation that sits behind your observation. So there's a bit of a, there's a um, picture on this page with a person um, watering some flowers and, you know, above the ground level is observable and at the surface and I've used that as a metaphor to describe findings and then below the surface, the roots of the flowers um, used as a metaphor to describe the root of the observed behavior um, and below the surface, which is the insight. And examples of a finding um, on that page, I've said, Jane likes to water her garden in the morning sun. She does this every weekday, which is something that we can directly observe if we were studying Jane, day in the life of Jane. So that would be the finding, but the insight might be, Connecting with nature first thing in the morning provides Jane with a sense of peace before facing the day. The belief might be being with nature is good for me. The motivation might be to achieve a sense of well-being and productivity. And that is obviously just a, that's a summary of a whole bunch of um, content that's on that page. Insights describe the motivations behind human behavior. Findings describe the behavior itself. Uh, This is how I summarize uh, quite a complex procedure of analysis and synthesis, actually, um, once you've collected a whole bunch of data through however method of observing human behavior, there are the surface things that we can directly observe and describe what people do. But the reason why people do them is not necessarily directly observable. And the process of going through Uh, thinking about all the different data points that you've collected um, and how they relate to each other and and understanding the context within which what you've observed happens and the broader understanding of the other actors in the system that you're, you know, working within helps to inform why certain things may be the way that they are. And the reason why we concern ourselves with asking the question why is typically if we were to just solve what we directly observe without really understanding why people are doing what they're doing, then our design interventions or solutions or programs or whatever it be that is the object of your attention as a human-centered designer may not necessarily hit the mark or it might be short-lived. You know, it's not too dissimilar to those of you who may have experienced working in uh, any type of engineering field where you're doing a root cause analysis where you might understand the failure mode, but you need to go deeper to understand why it happened in the first place. So there's similar sort of parallel thinking there. Okay, page 37. Anything is possible. There will be times when you uncover behavior that seems unbelievable. 
It might be incredibly selfless or the exact opposite. You may find yourself sitting, your mouth agape, trying to work out whether what you have uncovered can actually be a real thing. This is a good time to talk about the difference between a finding and an insight. Too often, we don't go deep enough in our inquiry. We report on our observations and describe what we have observed, how people interact with a product or service, or how they interact with each other in an organization. These are findings. Insight describes why people behave the way they do, why they use the product or service the way they do, or why they interact with each other a certain way. It is essential not to shut down your thinking too early, whether you're uncovering insights or generating ideas. You have to cultivate the belief that anything is possible, that anything can happen, and often does. This allows you to hold incredible ideas in the realm of possibility long enough for you to do something meaningful with them. We must give our insights the chance to be proven rather than dismiss them because of a perception of what is possible or not. When you have an idea, your mind becomes very curious about it. It says, ooh, this is new, and prods and pokes it to see what it's made of. A new idea is not well formed. It's too loose and ill-defined to hold up to this early interrogation very well. The result is that we talk ourselves out of this new idea before it has even formed into a vision that can be communicated. This prodding and poking takes many forms. It's too... Big, small, hard, easy, pretty, ugly, stupid, clever, whatever word. This interrogation is usually the first off the rank. It has a look at the newly conceived idea or insight and begins to judge its dimensions and value. It is usually run by the program that is linked to your personal self-worth and is very quick to protect you from any attack of you, to your well-being. It's also pretty good at influencing your decision to let the idea go. It tells you that the idea is beyond you and... Dot, dot, dot. Somebody's probably already done it. This is a beauty. Somebody may have already done it, but you haven't done it. By the very nature of you being the creator, your idea will manifest differently to anything that is already out there. We don't have one bakery that serves the world or one clothing shop. So what if it already exists? Creation is such an emergent process that it is almost impossible to say that what you're about to create already exists. Your idea doesn't exist in the world yet because you haven't created it. To beat this early interrogative poking and prodding, you have to believe that anything in this universe is possible. This is the fun part of the creation process. Let your thinking form in freedom. Support its formation with the fuel of your imagination. Um, it seems I got quite passionate while I was writing the, writing this section. Um, on the on the page in big sort of capital letters, I've written: insights are innocent until proven guilty, and real until proven otherwise. <laughs> and I think what I'm doing is relating to um, uh, you know experiences in my in my time you know doing this type of work where. Um, I've either witnessed it happen to other people or it's happened directly to me where you are in the analysis and synthesis phase and you're trying to make sense of what it is that you've observed and why and sometimes those insights come as ideas of insights you know not necessarily as an idea of a solution but an idea of what the insight might be 
And the people in the room who are naturally inclined to be um, critical listeners and critical thinkers start interrogating that insight for its robustness. And sometimes this can happen too early while it's still fledgling in your mind and um, you haven't yet been able to connect enough dots to be able to give it that robustness. And sometimes, you know, really great threads of an idea can be uh, abandoned too early because they haven't been able to, you know, stand up to that early interrogation. So I think the, the sort of the message here is to just be mindful of which part of the creation process you're at and at what point, uh, you know, early in the process, it's really important to nurture those ideas and to not let them get squished and trampled on too soon. Um, but then also to avoid attachment later on in the design process. We we have spoken about um, attachment earlier on in this chapter too, when, you know, when you become attached to an idea or you become certain that the idea that you have or the insight that you have is is the one and the most important and that's when you can start feeling a little bit of resistance uh, in a team and and that sort of thing so it's quite an art to know when to let go and when to hold on um and uh yeah i've i've experienced the whole spectrum (laughs) um yeah it's a really important one okay unleash your imagination Our mainstream education system is designed to create convergent thinkers. We are taught there is an absolute right and wrong. As adults, we are rewarded for quick decision-making and knowing all the answers. We value solutions, not questions, and our imagination doesn't get a look in. It might seem odd to couple imagination with research. Traditionally, research has been associated with graphs and charts, experiments and evidence, although we all know how fond Einstein was of imagination. Remember to be imaginative at the at every stage of the creation process. Okay, page 40. Using your imagination, this is another big purple double spread page, um, another exercise. Step one, create new methods when insight hunting. Don't be shy about creating new methods to conduct your insight hunting. It's easy to rely on tried and true methods for observation and research, but each situation is different. Don't be afraid to borrow from other fields of research to gain inspiration about how to attack a particular research question. Don't be afraid to engage in different ways and use different tools. How will you see something new if you never look from a different perspective? The small print here is that you must always make sure that any new methodology you create will give you robust results that you can stand by. And it's quite literally in small print. Step two, use physical space deliberately when synthesizing. Use space to help your thinking. Create different zones within your project space to think about different themes. Change the shape your body takes when you're doing work. Stand up, sit down, slouch on a beanbag, bounce on a fitball. Introduce variety and interest into this part of your work to keep fresh thoughts flowing. Use your imagination to think of new connections between concepts, new frameworks that help you make sense. Freely associate disparate concepts to see what is triggered in your mind. You can also associate different spaces with different insights. This builds spatial memory and helps you connect more deeply with your work. 
Using space helps establish spatial memory. You can use space to get you into a particular zone for creative thinking. So I'm really interested in the interrelationship between um, mind and body and spirit. Um, but in particular in the context of human-centered design, um, mind and body. And we often privilege our thinking brain, (laughs) especially the thinking that we know that we're doing, over any other type of wisdom. And I think the body actually holds a lot of wisdom and can be a really, really critical uh, tool in guiding us through the process of creation And we often don't spend time to be able to listen to it, to be able to feel what direction we might need to take our thinking. And I think it's really important to cultivate your entire being, um, not just your brain, as an instrument in design. And I think that belief that I have um, is informing this particular one which is around using physical space and changing the shape of your body all right step three give yourself permission to freely generate ideas give yourself the permission to be ridiculous in your suggestions use your imagination and create freely without judgment or critique Don't feel as if you have to seem professional or sane as you go through this initial process. Bring together your insights in new and interesting ways and dig deep into why you've seen what you've seen and how you might address these insights in meaningful and creative ways. Make sure you collaborate with many different brains to help with this. (laughs) I just got a visual of all these different brains in jars. Uh, That's obviously not what I mean, Uh, different people. Um, More variety means more interesting ideas. Step four, embrace constraints. They make your work stronger. Constraints are your friend. Implementing your new design within an organization or community is always going to involve overcoming many barriers. The only way to get around them, especially when your work is creating significant disruptions, to embedded ways of working and living is to rely on your imagination. You've got to be nimble-minded to weave in and around the constraints presented to you as you move through the process of implementation. Don't ever give up. Just keep thinking of new and creative ways to get the job done. And then in a little black circle with an arrow um, associated with this step, there's a little call out that says constraints are an opportunity to get creative. Treat them like your imagination's sparring partner. We can, as designers and, and leaders, get quite easily frustrated when we come up against constraint after constraint after constraint. Um, they just feel like brick wall after brick wall after brick wall sometimes. There is an opportunity that we have to reframe the role that those brick walls and constraints play in our profession. And that's what I'm getting at here. If you were to see people blocking you or um, the process not allowing a certain way that you want to progress or um, legislation holding you back from reaching agreement or whatever it might be, see that as an opportunity to get creative to find another way around, to use your imagination, to conceive of a different way. Constraints breed creativity and uh, I think we can, we can welcome them in to uh, enable that increased creativity for ourselves. 
Okay, step five, use unique methods to tell your story. Slideshows don't really cut it when you are trying to engage an audience in the human condition, especially when you want them to experience what you did as you learned about the people you have studied. Think about other forms of storytelling that will help you deliver the message you need to. Don't rely on the quick and easy method of sticking photos and text on a slideshow. Call out. We have passed down complex stories about the human condition while sitting on a rock around a fire for for centuries. Perhaps you should try that too. Okay, so I'm not recommending that you light a fire every time you have something to present. And obviously there's a, there's a place for slideshows and presentations and all of that sort of stuff. But I think what I'm saying is we can get into the um, familiar territory of communicating um, our work uh, with a PowerPoint presentation or a keynote or, you know, visual slide deck. And there is an opportunity to uh, engage people in lots of different ways around what it is that you need them to hear and see and, and experience. And often we don't spend enough time conceiving of ways of communicating. We um, channel all of our imagination and creativity into the solution or the the you know analysis and synthesis of the insights but there's also an opportunity to apply that to how all of that knowledge is then communicated with the world as well um and number six last one on this page remain detached from your ideas i think i touched on this earlier it's important not to get too attached to your design they often get torn down during testing this is actually a wonderful thing Use your imagination to think about how you can incorporate the results. Don't assume that you need to make your original idea work. Think about the outcome you are aiming for and get creative about all the different ways you might be able to achieve it. This might trigger a completely different design. Don't cling to your ideas. You never know when a better one might come along. Harsh but true. Okay. And we're, that's it. We're at the end of the chapter. Um, we do our best creating when we know why we are creating in the first place. Um, I, there's a definite bias in that for me. Um, it's in my bias is that I know that I do my best work when I know why I'm doing it. Um, I'm not very good at just executing blindly on a task. Um, okay, to sum up, you need to be self-aware to design effectively for others If you are not aware of your own beliefs and biases, you will also be unaware of their influence on your insights, ideas and designs. As a human-centered designer, your intention is to improve the experience of reality for people. To do this effectively, you need to be masterful at acknowledging how your own perspectives affect how you make sense of what you observe. Remind yourself that it is not your reality that is important, but the reality of those you are designing for. Next, your insights can only make their way into reality if you can effectively visualize them in preparation for communicating them. The next chapter explores envisioning insights. My goodness, that brings us to the end of chapter one. My gosh. Okay, so that is, uh, that's, that's page 43 and uh, chapter two, which is called Envision starts on the next page so we'll be going from page 45 in the next episode 
Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being here at the end of the podcast. You're still with me. I hope you're finding this um, entertaining slash educational slash inspiring slash whatever it needs to be for you right now. And I look forward to uh, reading the next chapter with you in the next episode. Until then, take care and I'll chat soon.